Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Hindsight is 2019, in which we look at 250 years of Dartmouth history through 25 objects from the library's archival collections, one per decade. I'm Peter Carini, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm Sophia Linkus. I am a freshman at Dartmouth, the class of 2021. I'm Dylan Clausen, and I'm a member of the class of 21. We're looking at this document here, and my first question for you is, what do you think it is? It looks like an old document. Um, it kind of looks like it has a stamp, so maybe something legal mm-hmm. or political. Um, and it looks super old because it's handwritten with cursive. And I don't know, maybe it's made of parchment? Um, like a charter or something? It's kind of faded, I can't really tell. Well, this here, oh, this says Trustees of Dartmouth College. Dartmouth College is written bigger than everything else. Is that like a, it's like a seal of some kind. Uh-huh. I, I'm not, I don't really know my seal. Yeah, no, no one would necessarily. <laughs> is that like a government or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a royal seal. King George III's oh, okay. royal seal. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then you said you saw the word Dartmouth. So does that lead, lend you to think that it might be something? Is it like Dartmouth's charter? It is. Okay. Very good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> really good. Okay. <laughs> so um, my second question is, what's, uh, what surprises you about it? Um, it there's, it's anything. just writing. I don't know. I would expect um, there to be, like, I can't really see any signatures. And um, it's not like a normal page size. I guess it's super old, but... Um, yeah, also the writing is super faint. Um, that, I mean, that it's still intact probably would be, be like my first reaction. Um, I didn't know we had like such a connection to like the royal England, I guess. So what questions does it lead you to ask? Um, well, firstly, I wish I could read it. Um, I guess if I looked really hard, I could read it and know what it says. Um, also, I wonder if it's still being used today and if yeah. we still abide by it today that'd be cool to know like why was it why was it made in the first place like what is it what's its significance right what what's what's really important about a charter for a college and why would they want a a royal charter mm-hmm. at that time so as you can tell from our conversation with dylan and sophia we're looking at the college charter, and more specifically, we're looking at the 1760s through the college charter. This royal charter established Dartmouth College as an institution of higher learning in 1769, and the charter itself is handwritten, as Sophia noted, and carries the royal seal of King George III. It measures about 64 by 83 centimeters, and today it lives its life sandwiched between two thick pieces of lucite and stowed away in the stacks of Rauner Library. So in response to Sophia's question, yes, the charter is still used as a governing document today, even though it's been amended over time. So think of it like the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution, the original, is enshrined in the National Archives, and you can go see it under very low lighting, but it's not the living, breathing document that we change and work on all the time. It's the enshrined beginning version. And that's kind of how the Dartmouth Charter is, too. It's been amended and changed over time, but the basic charter is still there as the governing document for the institution. Now, Dylan's question about why we needed a charter to begin with, that's a little more complicated. 
And um, it really lies in the story of Eliezer Wheelock's struggle for power and control and the beginning of his school. So let's go back a little bit and talk about how this all began and, and sort of start from the beginning. In the 1740s, Wheelock began taking on pupils to tutor. And the story goes that he was poor and he needed additional income. But this popular narrative, it might not be entirely true. But that's probably something we'll try to cover in a different episode or maybe in a blog post or something because it's a little more complicated than we need to get into here. So one of the pupils that Wheelock took on was a man named Samson Ockham from the Mohegan Nation. And Ockham turned out to be an extremely apt student. And from this experience, Wheelock devised this idea of training Native Americans to be ministers as a way to spread the gospel to members of the Native tribes. His premise was that through conversion, he could better assimilate them into European-American society. While the idea of anointing Native Americans as ministers to preach the gospel to their own people is a fairly original one, the concept of assimilation through education and religion is not so much. So John Eliot, who is credited with printing the first Bible in North America, and also was responsible for the setting up the praying towns in places like Barnstable, Massachusetts, uh, had similar ambitions. And he also founded a school for Native Americans in Roxbury almost 100 years before Wheelock did. So ultimately, Wheelock was really following in Eliot's footsteps. Wheelock's actions have been widely condemned, and rightly so. He was part of a long line of European Americans who worked to erode and even destroy some Native American culture. At the same time, it's really important to recognize Wheelock as a man of his time and to understand that his religious fervor was such that he very literally believed that he was saving the souls of these people. He also believed pretty strongly in their intellectual abilities. The education that Wheelock was providing to Occam and these other Native Americans was something that only a very few European Americans were even able to obtain, and many of them wouldn't have been able to actually do this level of, of work. So he had a, a really high regard for them in terms of intellect. But by extension, both Wheelock and Eliot's actions end in one of the most unfortunate chapters in this country's history, and that's the forceful removal of Native American children to off-reservation boarding schools in the later part of the 19th century. And it's really important to keep this in mind as we talk about the history of Dartmouth College. Like anything, it's not black and white. There are a lot of gray areas. So as his school began to grow, Wheelock realized that to remain in control, he would need a charter to cement his authority. In addition, he realized also that the school itself needed to be incorporated so that it could hold real property under the law. And getting a charter proved to be a really complex process for him, and it took him a long time. He tried several times in Connecticut, but wasn't able to get one there. So his final attempt to get a charter was in New Hampshire, and by that time, his mission had shifted a bit. And this change to his mission can be seen in one particular passage of the charter. And I'm going to read this passage. It's a little, it's, it's a little abbreviated, so it may, may not make the best sense, but... By and with the advice of our council for said province, by these present, will ordain, grant, and constitute that there be a college erected in our said province of New Hampshire by the name of Dartmouth College for the education and instruction of youth 
of the Indian tribes in this land in reading, writing, and all parts of learning which shall appear necessary and expedient for civilizing and Christianizing children of pagans, as well as all liberal arts and sciences, and also of English youth and others. So you often hear the phrase that one word can change the course of history, but it's kind of hard to find examples. But in this case, one word in the charter actually did alter the course of history, and that word was college. In 1766, Wheelock published the third of his reports that are commonly referred to as the narratives on his Indian charity school. And the word school is, is kind of key here. These types of pamphlets were really popular at the time, and they were used to disseminate information and, and to foment arguments and things like that. Think of them as like a blog post or a podcast or something like similar to that. But for Wheelock, they were also fundraising tools. He put them out so people would give him money for his school. And in this report, he reprints his letter of introduction for Nathaniel Whitaker and Samson Ockham, who he sent to England to raise money for his school. And in his own words, he clearly states his intention regarding their mission. Whereas it has pleased God in his providence to call our reverend and worthy pastor, Mr. Nathaniel Whitaker, from us for a season to go to Europe to solicit charities for the Indian Charity School under the care of Reverend Eliezer Wheelock of Lebanon and promote Christian knowledge among the Indians of the continent. So the key word here, as I said before, is school. I actually said college, but uh, the, the alternate is school. Nowhere in the first four of Wheelock's narratives, including the one that was printed in 1769, does the word college ever appear in conjunction with Wheelock's intentions. But the introduction of that one small word would alter the course of the institution's history dramatically. So where does this infamous life-changing word come into the story? The first mention of a college that we can find does not come from Wheelock at all. It's a suggestion made by William Smith, a prominent New York lawyer and member of the Governor's Council in Albany, New York. In a letter written in May of 1767, Smith attempted to persuade Wheelock to locate his school in Albany. And in his letter, Smith mentions that the people there would be happy to give him 2,300 pounds and would be pleased to see the school made into a university or college with Wheelock at its head. Now, Albany was not the only place that was wooing Wheelock by offering to aggrandize his school and make it into a college. Others, including several towns in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, tried the same approach. And a year and a half after Mr. Smith's letter, in November of 1768, Wheelock writes in response to a letter from a man named Timothy Woodbridge, who was entreating him to bring his school to western Massachusetts. In his letter, Woodbridge had mentioned that the governor of Massachusetts would also be interested in turning the school into a college. And replying to Woodbridge, Wheelock objects that there is already a college in that colony, and so there's no need for another one. Though he doesn't mention it, he is, of course, referring to Harvard. This is the first hint we can find that something or someone has turned Wheelock's head and he's now thinking of his school as a college. But why? That's the big question. Is it prestige? Is it money? Is it because he knows his grand experiment to train Indians as ministers is failing? We don't really know. It appears to be one of those frustrating silences we often encounter in the archival record. 
Either Wheelock did not write to anyone of his change of heart, or the letter where he discusses these thoughts just didn't survive. This happens all the time in, in historic records. The next time that Wheelock refers to his school as a college is in a letter to Governor Wentworth of New Hampshire in August of 1769. It's a really short letter, and the suggestion appears as a postscript at the end of the letter. Considering the profound effect that such a change was bound to have on the makeup and purpose of Wheelock's institution, and knowing that Wheelock is, was a shrewd strategist, it's hard to believe that this was not kind of a carefully calculated suggestion. So we don't appear to have Wentworth's response, but in a letter to Alexander Phelps in October of that same year, Wheelock expresses his pleasure with the charter approved by Wentworth and largely authored by Wheelock himself and his intention to name the school turned college after Lord Dartmouth. So finally, the charter is signed and sealed on December 13, 1769, and Wheelock's school is officially lifted up to become a college and set on the path that would make it one of the most prestigious institutions of higher learning in this country or indeed in the world. And it's the story of these ups and downs of Dartmouth's ascent and development from what was really a handful of students on the frontier of European America to a prestigious university that we will be following in the rest of this podcast. Future episodes are going to th have things like stuff about college traditions, the founding of the medical school. We'll explore the role of slavery in early history of the college and much, much more. Now, the episodes are going to come out in kind of a random order, and you can listen to them that way, or you can wait till they're all done and then listen to them decade by decade in chronological order if you prefer. If you're interested in learning a bit more about Wheelock and the development of the Charter, we highly recommend Eliezer Wheelock and the Dartmouth Charter by Jerry Danielle, Emeritus Professor of History. You can find copies of this piece in either Baker Berry Library or here in Rauner. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you will continue to enjoy Hindsight is 2019. Hindsight is 2019 is a production of the Dartmouth College Library and is produced as part of the celebration of Dartmouth's 250th anniversary. This episode was written and directed by Peter Carini, produced by Julia Logan, and our sound engineer was Sarah Holston, class of 2017.